Um, I've been watching this show on TV. Has anybody seen the Great British Baking Show? It's a spinoff of the Great British Bake Off, but they've changed the show. Oh, and it's gotten oh so much better. And uh, I've been watching it in the last like three weeks. I've been obsessed with this show. My son said, why do you like it? And I couldn't give him a reason. I was like, I don't know. And I finally figured it out. It's because they're so quaint, and even when they're angry, I don't know, because I don't understand half of what they're saying. There are people on that show that when they're interviewing them, they talk, and they talk for like 30 seconds, and the entire 30 seconds, I'm like, I did not understand one word that guy just said. And I don't want to say he's mumbling, but I certainly didn't understand. Like, there were words, and I'm fairly sure they were English, they're just not words I know. Here's just a short list of some of the words I learned just this past week. Knackered, bap, chuffed. Now, none of those are curse words, so don't panic. Knackered means, I had to look it up, extremely tired. They're extremely tired. Bap, it's like a bun of some type. Chuffed, very happy or excited about how something turned out. These are all words that I learned this past week. Now, I have spoken English most of my life. Not well, mind you, but most of my life. I grew up speaking English. Now, I will say this also. My mom grew up in the South. Her English sounded slightly different. Now it doesn't. Now she sounds like she's a true northern Wisconsin person. But for years when I was growing up, she still sounded like, oh, are you from the South? And she'd go, a little bit. (laughs) Because she was, but she wasn't. And then... I moved to Detroit, and people don't realize this because they think Detroit, that's Midwest. No, Detroit, East Coast. We park things in the car over there. Everything we said, so that's where I was next, and people don't realize it, but I sounded, people thought I was from the East Coast. Then I moved to Wisconsin. When I first met my wife, she actually thought I had a slight speech impediment because she's like, you would say things, I'd be like, but it's okay, she still liked me. She just thought I had a speech impediment until she went back and discovered, oh, that's how they all talk. (laughs) It was before the movie Fargo came out and made us all famous. So we're saying words, but I also use slang that she didn't understand. And if you go to certain parts of our country, people say things, and they think you know what they're saying, but what they're saying, we don't even understand. Uh, My son, after I was talking to him about this, he showed me this documentary about this group who lives in the Appalachians. There's one road in, one road out, and that road 11 years ago, the road in, got closed, basically. Their one road got closed, and it was closed for almost four years because of whatever reasons. And so for four years, the U.S. government actually had to fly food and supplies into them, and it was right here in the U.S., and it was really interesting. And we watched this documentary, and as we're watching it, all the people there, in just four years, they had developed their own language... And they would call things like different terms than what we would use in just a short period of time. And it was 11 years that they struggled to fully get in and out and be integrated again. And yet they were always segmented off. And there's people that live in this little village of, I think it was like five or 600 people that have never left the village. And when they talk, it sounds like southern drawl with marbles in your mouth. And you're going, what is that man saying? He's using words. He's expressing and communicating something, but it's not the way I would do it. It's not the way you might do it. At the same time, things mean different things to different people. Because if somebody told me they were chuffed knackered about a bap, I'd be like, what? (laughs) 
So in order for us to understand our mission as a church, in order for us to understand that, we have to understand the words we're speaking and define them. Because the way you view a word and the way I view a word could be extremely different. The way you speak it and hear it can be different than the way I speak it, hear it, and understand it. So you say something to me, I think we're on the same page, but we're completely off. I remember another time I was supposed to meet somebody at, uh, at a theater, and this was pre-cell phone days, and I got dropped off at the theater, and I stood there, and I stood there, and the movie was going to start in like two minutes, so I bought a ticket and thought, maybe they're already inside, and I went inside, and I w- looked around for them, watched an entire movie, left, pre-cell phone days, got picked up, went home, called them. Then the next day they called me back and said, where were you? And I said, I was at the theater. And we started talking. There were two theaters. So we thought we knew where the other person was going, but we didn't. Have you ever experienced something like that in life? You think you're on the same page? Maybe it's you and your spouse. You have a conversation. We have dinner plans on Friday. You think you understand the dinner plans. You show up on Friday and she's angry because you were supposed to be home an hour early because the time changed, or you're confused because she had asked you to pick something up, and you thought she meant butter, and she didn't mean butter. I know, it sounds strange, but it's a real, that's a real occurrence that actually happened. I didn't know cookie butter and butter were different. Did you know cookie butter and butter were different? I thought butter was butter. Things like that happen. And as we try to get on the same page and we try to have a common vision, we need to understand words. So if our mission is to create a safe place where people can discover God, I'm sorry, discover who God is in an environment of love, acceptance, and forgiveness, then that means you need to understand what what each of those words are defined as. So here's how I view today we're going to talk about creating a safe place. Humankind craves safety. Because even in our extreme sports, our extreme sports aren't like extreme sports in other countries. You ever ziplined in South America? It's a lot different than ziplining here in North America. (laughs) Apparently, they're not as litigious. I went to a water park one time in Mexico, and for some random reason, well, there's a goat just that lives there that eats the weeds, but there's also a monkey you're like, oh, what a cute monkey. And the first thing the guy says is, don't touch the monkey. And I was like, what? He bites. I was like, why do we have a biting monkey at a water park? <laughs> Just there. <laughs> it's a different culture. It's a different society. I like different, not bad. Although I will say, biting monkey at a water park, maybe a little bit bad. <laughs> but it's different. Our idea of safe is different than some other people's idea of safe. And yet we, as a people, we crave safety. We invented seatbelts. It was mastered uh, on the Volvo. They came up with the first three-point seatbelt. But did you realize seatbelts were an option until the 1960s in your car, even though they were invented in 1911? Buy a car pre-1965, you don't have to mess with those pesky seatbelts. You can die like a man. Go through the windshield. I don't know what their theory was. We use seatbelts. It's the law. Most of you wouldn't think of getting your toddler in the car and just having them sit on your lap. This year I was in Mexico. I'm going to the pastor's house. He's like, oh, I'm going to take my nephew with me. Okay. He jumps in. He's sitting on his lap. I was like, how old is he? 
two. I also asked his name. The pastor didn't remember his name. In fairness, the pastor has eight siblings, and they all have like six, five, six, seven kids each. So he's got a lot of nieces and nephews, but he didn't remember this one's name until we got to his house and found out, oh, it's the same as his name. They have the same name. I was like, you'd think you'd remember that one. But he's just sitting on the, and then he just falls asleep. He's playing with a car on my dashboard, then he just falls asleep. And my whole time, I mean, I was praying harder during that 25-minute car ride. God, do not let me get in an accident now. Do not. Do not. God, protect us. And I'd look over and smile. (laughs) You're holding a toddler on your lap that keeps wanting to get down and play. We don't do that here for the most part. We put them in a car seat. We buckle them in. We We desire safety. So if we want to create a safe place, that's in our human nature. How do we do that? We don't want our kids to grow up in a bubble. That's not what I'm saying. My son... We made him wear helmets, but people would say, well, you guys sure are adamant about helmets. Yes, because he broke in his arm three times, had stitches three times, and that was all before he was seven years old. My son was, you know, not one of those kids that was indestructible. He was quite destructible, and he was trying to destroy himself. (laughs) So, yes, my wife's rule was if there's wheels under you, you have to have a helmet on because all the time he was crashing into things. He's, I remember when he was two years old, he walked in, and he handed us two halves of this little precious moments figurine, and he's handed them to us with the biggest smile on his face. He said, broke this, and then he ran off, and we were like, we better stop him. He's not like feeling bad. He's triumphant. He'll have destroyed everything in our living room if we don't get back there. So we make him wear a helmet because we want him safe. You can't protect people from everything, but... We want the idea of feeling safe. We want to feel safe when we walk into church. We want to feel safe because we want to feel safe to worship. But in order for us to ever feel truly safe, we need to understand the one who makes us safe. Psalm 92, 1 and 2 tells us this. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him I will trust. Who do I put my trust in if I want to feel safe? If I want to create a safe environment where people can really come in and discover who God is, because I'm not going to be able to learn, I'm not going to be able to grow, I'm not going to be able to discover and, and fully engage in this place if I don't feel safe coming here. And I'm not just talking about safety at the door. I mean, we put some things in place. We have parents sign kids in and out. Now, for the most part, Our teachers, they still know every parent. And I've had people go, why do I have to sign them in and out? Everybody knows me. And I always say, because I hope that someday we're big enough that not everybody knows you. I hope that someday we have so many kids coming here, we have to because we can't know them all. But I also want your kids to have safety. I want people to come in and feel like, oh, they want to know my child. They'll recognize if my child's missing. They'll see that. They'll know that. And yet, at the same time, I don't want us to become such a safety-minded culture that we won't do anything that's not 100% known. So how do I create this safe place that also challenges people to do more and be more? Because we create a safe place, and yet we look at the disciples. They all were sent out. We look at Paul. He risked everything and died because he believed in the cause and he believed in the message of who Jesus was. So I want to create a place where people can discover God 
and feel safe doing so, but I also want to create a place that says, I'm going to challenge you and push you and stretch you and want more and expect more of you and from you, not because you owe me anything, but because God has so much bigger for you than you could ever imagine. So here's how we as a congregation take steps to make people feel safe. Let us know that they don't have to be like us to be a part of us. You can walk in the doors and not look like us, not act like us, not dress or speak like us. You can think differently and still be accepted here. Allowing people to acclimate to our culture. Don't have unrealistic expectations that your way is the only way or even the best way. Your interpretation of Scripture may not be the only one. I know some of you just like shut down and probably closed your Bible and got ready to walk out the door because I said your interpretation of Scripture because God has told you But when people say, I like only this version because it's the true interpretation, I go, no, 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 no. The true interpretation came to us in a foreign language, Old Testament, six, seven, eight thousand years ago through oral tradition and then was written down. And now you're going to say it went from oral tradition to written tradition to lost to discovered to translated and you know exactly what was being said. No. What we know is we can learn and know the nature of God. Does that mean I don't believe the Bible is true? No, I do believe the Bible is true, but I don't believe that you have cracked the code of all truth. Sorry if that shatters your illusion. Nor do I believe your favorite Bible teacher, who is probably great and has taught you many things, nor do I believe whoever he or she is, that they have the pipeline to God as the voice of God. Now, do I sometimes speak things that people say, wow, when you spoke that, you really challenged me. Yes, that's the Holy Spirit working through me and working in you. That's what we do. We rely on the Holy Spirit to challenge, to shape, to change, and to move you. But it always has to be in line with what we know from Scripture. And even then, we're understanding and learning and growing. So, allowing people time to acclimate to our culture. You cannot change the world from outside. I can't do a thing by standing and opening that door and yelling at traffic to slow down. It doesn't work. But you know what I can do? I can get involved in people's lives and help them learn and grow and understand and challenge and change their preconceived ideas of who God is and what the church is. And we can become a place that is counter to the culture in what they think they know and understand. In other words, we can help them see, understand, discover, and know who God is in a way they never thought possible. If we're willing to become who God is creating us to be, we can make this a safe place. Safe doesn't mean we don't take risks. Safe means we're calculated in what we do. We give people freedom to worship how they choose as long as it's not a distraction to others. People said, well, I went to this one church where they have flags, and I'm like, okay. I don't know that I want you to have a flag because it might be a distraction, but I'm not going to say, if you want to get up and dance, go to the back of the room, get up and dance. So we're relegated to the back? No, you're relegated to where you don't distract other people. Some people want to raise their hands. Some people want to worship like this, in quiet solitude, just staring down. And do I say, you're wrong and you're right? No. I go, come on in. Everybody come in and let's worship together. Because we want to be in a place, we want to be a people, we want to be a culture that says, we want to worship God and I want you to feel safe doing it. 
And in order for you to feel safe, you need to worship the way you want. However, in order for somebody else to feel safe, that doesn't give you unlimited carte blanche to do whatever you want. It's the same thing. I'd be a lot safer if I had a flamethrower and a moat around my house. However, my neighbors might not be. Or if I could get that attack monkey from the water park in Mexico. However, you don't want the attack monkey to go on the loose. The truth is, I don't have a right to do whatever I want when it violates and makes other people feel uncomfortable and unsafe. That doesn't mean I compromise what I'm saying. It means the way I do it has to be well thought out and well enacted. Another way we make people feel safe is time and consistency. Time and consistency is how you recover from your breakup when you're in high school, and it's also how you learn to trust and love someone. You learn to trust and love someone over time when they're consistent. And we're going to give people time, and we're going to be consistent, consistent in our message, consistent in who we are, and in the way we look. And some people say, that's boring, it's always the same, and it probably is, but it also makes people know when they're coming in, they know what they're going to receive, they know that they're going to be cared for, they know that their children are going to be cared for, and that's who we are. Finally, we make people feel safe when we allow the Holy Spirit to confront sin. Now, if somebody has submitted to you and you're their mentor and, they're, and you're involved in their life and you see something going on, I'm not saying don't say anything. But if you don't have that kind of relationship, you pray for them, you love them, you get involved in their life, and you let the Holy Spirit be the one to confront their sin. I've had people call me and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, Pastor Jeff, but so-and-so is living with someone else. I'm like, okay, and did something happen to them? Well, no, but they're living down there. But are they okay? Well, they're living. Okay, listen, I have a standard for my life, and I talk and I preach what I believe. At the same time, they have access to the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. It is His job to confront them on their sin. Because if we really want to start looking, I could probably find out a sin that you do or don't do, and I might even be able, if I really did some digging, to start poking at it. But that's not my role. My role is to challenge you to not want to sin and then let the Holy Spirit illuminate in your life what is going on. Do you see the difference? It's not my job to look and go, Jim, I know you and you're a sinner and here's what I see. Because now what I've done is I've severed relationship with Jim. It is my job to say, Jim, I love you. What's going on in your life? And why do you think that is? And how is that affecting you? And how is that affecting your marriage and your relationships and your friendships? By the way, I don't know of any sin that Jim's doing. Please don't think that I picked on him on purpose. That's the problem with sitting closest to me. But the reality and the truth is, it's the Holy Spirit's job. It's our job to love people. It tells us in Scripture, it's your kindness that leads me to redemption, O Lord. Not it's your judgment, or it's the guy who sat next to me in church that yelled at me for sinning, or the guy who told me he hated me with a sign on the street corner and that I was going to hell. That's what led me to redemption. No, it's your kindness that leads us to redemption. And we're a reflection of that kindness in the people that we encounter, in our spouse, in our children, in our neighbors, in our friends, in the people within our church. Does that mean I don't live by a standard? No, I do. 
And my standard has to be higher. But it means I don't have the same expectation for you as I have for myself. And the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to convict you. So here's some things we don't do in order to create a safe place. I don't compromise the message of the gospel. The gospel is what it says it is. Sometimes people will challenge me and say, well, I believe all paths lead to heaven. And I go, I can't get there. Because in Scripture it tells me, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I could be misunderstanding, misinterpreting, or whatever, but I'm going to stand by that and say, this is the one way I see us getting there. And yet, people will say I'm a universalist because I say, God gave you free will, and at no point in any of his writings does he ever say, you, he takes away your free will. God gave you free will. He tells us from the very beginning, he could have just created a world full of angels. He already had that. He wanted something else. Is my shoelace bugging you? Oh, thank you. First time this has ever happened. All right. All right. Wow, I think he actually threw me. We're good. All right. So, at no point in history does God say, at no point in Scripture does he say, he's taken away your free will, which means we have the free will to choose him. So some people say, well, that's a universalist approach. No, it's not. Because I do believe that there's a hell. And I believe that there's nobody there that doesn't choose to be there. But I believe the reality is God so loved the world that he sent his own son because he wants to save you and me. So I'm not compromising the gospel to make us feel safe. But I'm also not saying, if you don't agree exactly with my three-point dichotomy of what I view this in this one Old Testament scripture, then you can't be a part of our church. And you say, oh, Jeff, that's so extreme. And I've known churches that are like that. I know churches that make you sign some crazy pledges if you want to become a member, and you can't serve unless you're a member, and you can't do this unless you're a member, and you can't do that, because then it becomes all about, and again, by the way, if you're a member of another church and you had to sign a commitment pledge, I respect that, that you chose to do that. But what I can't do is say, you do this, because as soon as I start having that be our standard of membership, it starts to be, who can we keep out? Because they're not worthy, and they're not good enough. And mine is, come in, the doors are open. Let's worship together. Let's discover more of who God is together. Creating a safe place does not mean we live without risk. Like I said, Dylan broke his arms, his arm, same one, three times. Wrist, this bone here, whatever it's called, and his elbow. He's had stitches multiple times. And yet, we still had him go out there and play baseball, and he played catcher for years. Now he wore a face mask, and he wore a helmet, and he did things to protect him. But we didn't say, oh, we're not going to let him take any risk. What we said is, we're going to try to keep him safe in the midst of that risk so he can discover who he is as a boy. We let him ride his bike off big jumps. We actually had ramps that we made. We would put ramps. We had a downhill in our backyard in Iowa, and we'd put a ramp, and he'd try to jump over the creek. Usually he landed in it. But I still put a helmet on his head because I figure he can recover from a broken ankle. He ain't going to recover from a broken head. So there's going to be risk, and risk is okay. But we want to, even in the risk, the risk to me isn't making other people feel unsafe. It's us moving us out of our comfort zone. Following Jesus is risky. 
I said that in a message one time years ago, that following Jesus, kind of the line from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when they ask if Aslan's good, and they said, yes, Aslan's good, but he's not safe. And I equated, and we were actually talking about the allegorical, how that's the same as Jesus. Jesus is good, but it's not safe because he pushes you to do things and he stretches you and he makes you become more of who, he, who God created you to be and we don't like it and so we keep wanting to go back to I feel best just sitting in this one group with people who all agree with me, act like me, look like me, talk like me. That's where I feel best and safest and most comfortable and God keeps pushing us out of that and pushing us out of that and Jesus wants to take us to new places. That's who Jesus is and what he wants to do because he wants to, you to become more of who he created you to be and not find ways to hide. And so I talked about how Jesus is good, but he's not safe. And I had a person who so didn't like that. They contacted me seven years later out of the blue and said, do you remember when you said this? Because I still don't agree with it. And I was like, wow, it's been seven years. Let it go. At the other side of the corner, I was like, wow, they say nobody remembers what you say. They only remember what you do. This person remembered what I said. And we had a conversation that day about why she disagreed with this. And at the end of it, I said, the problem is you want this safe and secure Christianity, but there's Christians around the world that aren't safe. But they're not safe because they're willing to risk something. Risking means we may not be safe, and yet we want to create a safe place where people can risk what's really worth risking. Some people want to create a safe place so they can become insular and not let anything from the outside get them. I want to create a safe place because the world outside is dark and broken, and they need to know that there's security somewhere. And this needs to be that place where they can discover God and safety. It doesn't mean that we'll stop gathering. You know what? There are liability issues. There are bad things that happen in public gatherings. There are all kinds of things. And we do what we can. We do background checks on people. We carry liability insurance. We put a pad around a post in the middle of a playground because we didn't want some kid to run into it and get hurt. You're welcome. I didn't care. I was like, yeah, they're kids. They'll recover. But no, no, we did it anyway. We do certain things because we want to make sure that people are safe. I'm not going to quit gathering because it would be a lot easier if we just didn't come here. I have a friend who's a youth pastor. He was driving a van to winter camp. They got into an accident. Three kids died. That's a tough one. That is a really, really tough one. How do you explain that? Where was God in that? It's safer if we just stay home. But God didn't create us to just hide from the world. He created us to be a light to the world. He created us to go out into a broken world and show them who Jesus is. So here's my conclusions. You, only you can ask, answer this, and I like those questions best, but do you feel safe when you come to church? Safe to explore who God is. Safe to engage in the worship. Safe to get out of your seat and go say hello to someone. Safe to participate and be involved. Do you feel safe doing that? Number two, what would a safe and yet still effective church look like if you don't feel safe? What would it look like for us to be safe but still be effective? I know of churches where outsiders literally aren't allowed. You have to be brought by a member and they check IDs at the door and they talk to, because they're going to be safe. 
And the doors are locked, like you literally get buzzed in. And that's not my culture, and it's not where I'm at. But that's not what I want to walk through and live in either. Are there sometimes some strange people that wander into our building? Absolutely. And we tell, you know, I tell James or Mike and just kind of watch them. But if they want to be here and worship with us, I've had people that are high in my services. I've had people that are drunk in my services. I've had people that fell asleep because they, not because they were just tired, but just because they're so strung out on something. But obviously they felt safe coming in. And I want to create a place where they feel safe. Sometimes people say, oh, I hate how these kids just run all over around here and they're making, you know why they do that? Because they feel safe. When a kid doesn't feel safe, they stand next to their parent and hide behind a skirt or pants, whatever the parent is wearing. I'm not. But that's what they do. You know when they feel safe? When they'll roam around and this becomes their second home. People are like, oh, I'm really sorry. It's like, as long as, the only thing I care about, and it's not because of the sacred space, it's because of the electrical. I'm always like, I just want them off the stage to protect them because we've got wires. I'm not worried if they hit a drum in the sense of, oh, they really are interested in the drums. Then take them up afterwards and let them play, but just walk them up and walk them off. I don't care. It's not that this is sacred. It's that I want to protect them from things that could hurt them, but I want kids to feel like this is their place. This is where they live. You know why? Because I want them to look back and go, yeah, I had great memories growing up in church. It was like my second home. I felt safe there. I felt loved there. I felt cared for. And finally, the last thing is, are you willing to stretch yourself to help others feel safe? Because sometimes that means saying hello to someone that you don't even know so that they feel safe, so that they feel welcome. Sometimes that means volunteering in an area of ministry. I've talked about this before. I don't want the same people to have to do everything. I want all of us to do something. And not, you know, it's just, it's a healthier approach when everybody will get involved in something. And I've had people say, well, what's the right number? And I'm always like, don't do that to me. (laughs) But I guess if I have to pick a number, I'd say, are you serving in an ongoing ministry that happens at least like once a month? Because if your idea of serving is, well, we do this three times a year, well, I appreciate whatever it is you're doing, but I think you're missing out on opportunity to help others feel invited, included, and wanted, and safe. Why do I want more kids or more leaders in our children's ministry? Because when parents drop their kids off, I want them to go, oh, wow, good staffing in here. We replaced three years ago, we put all new lighting in all the kids' rooms. Why? Because we want them well lit. We've gotten most of them back there painted. Why? Not all of them are, but why? Because we want it to look good and clean. When people walk in, they go, oh, this is a nice room. Because I want parents to feel safe so that they can come in here and discover God. It's not about, oh boy, aren't we the best looking church in town? We aren't. We are real and we are who we are. And we're in the process of creating a safe place where people can discover who God is in an environment of love, acceptance, and forgiveness. I'm going to continue this series next week. I hope you'll join me. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you, God, just over and over and over again. I thank you that you've given us a place to call our own, to call home.
I pray that you would draw those back who have drifted out, whether it's due to busyness, due to summer, or just due to life circumstances. Lord, draw them back. Let them feel your presence. For those in our congregation that are sick today, I pray for healing. God, I know of at least three that are just battling illness today. I pray for healing for those. God, for those who need a new job or who are underemployed, I pray, God, that you wouldn't just provide it, but it would be over and abundant above what they expected or asked or believed. God, for those who are struggling with um, just family dynamic issues, whatever that is, whether that's marriage or kids, God, I just pray that your presence would just be over that situation, over that marriage and over that family. Pour it out upon them, bless them, and let them feel you working in and through them. God, for those who are struggling with loneliness, isolation, depression today, I pray that you would meet them, that your Holy Spirit would be a comforter. And we thank you and praise you for who you are. In your name, amen.